Well, thank you to the worship team for leading us in worship today. And once again, I'd like to say welcome to each and every one of you. Welcome to our regular worshipers at Grace and all of you who have tuned in today. Wherever you are, at home or at home, (laughs) some of you at home, welcome to our Easter service. Grab a cup of coffee or a tea, uh, sit back and uh, just open your hearts to the word of God. I want to ask you, if you will, to do me a favor, uh, if you feel comfortable, just extending your hands like this as a sign of receptivity to the Word of God. If you would do that now, let us pray. Father, uh, what a joy it is to uh, worship together. We are so grateful for this Easter Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. No day means more to a Christ follower than Easter Sunday, and we're so thankful that we can be together through these broadcasts to share our love for you and our love for each other. So now, Lord, I would ask that you would open every heart uh, to the word that is going to be spoken. I pray that you would open our ears, open our, our spirits to what you have to say to us, that we might receive the word of God and be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we're going to talk about Easter. Surprise, right? Uh, but the fact that Easter has the power, the fact that Easter has the power to change your life. I don't know if you heard about the three guys who were sitting around and somehow the topic of their funerals came up. And one of them asked, hey, at your funeral, what would you like people to say about you? Well, the first guy said, well, what I'd like people to say about me is that I was really a good worker, uh, that I really did my job well, and that people around me appreciated what I did. And yeah, at my funeral, I would love to people say that I was really good at my job and did a really um, outstanding job. The second guy said, well, that's good. I appreciate that. But what I'd like people to say at my funeral is that I was a great family man, uh, that I loved my wife, that I loved my kids, that I was faithful to them that I did everything that I should have, and and that's what I would love people to say at my funeral. Well, the third guy says, listen, I've got you both beat. At my funeral, what I want to hear people say is this. Hey, look, he's moving. Everybody wants that at their funeral, right? Easter celebrates the most exciting event in history because at Easter we talk about someone who really did come back to life. Luke's gospel puts it this way. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. The women were not expecting a risen Savior. In fact, none of the disciples expected Jesus to rise from the dead. No matter how many times Jesus had told them, listen, this is going to happen. I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. They just didn't believe it. The women were there simply to anoint the body, to prepare the body for a Jewish customized funeral. So they go to the tomb with with their spices and they find the stone rolled away from the tomb, which was unusual because it weighed about uh, two tons and was guarded by Roman soldiers. Both of these things were gone. Listen to what we pick up the text again in Luke 24 verse 4. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes, later we know from other Gospels, two white-robed angels, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning, stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Now this morning I want to ask two questions. As we read this account of the resurrection, some of you say, yeah, I I, I believe. Uh, I'm here today watching online to celebrate the resurrection of my Lord. I'm all in on Jesus, okay? Many of you would say that. But others of you are going, saying something like this. You know what? I don't believe that really happened. I mean, it's a wonderful myth, a, a good legend, a great story that's good to tell to children, but, but it's not grounded in fact, is it? I'm here because there's nothing else good on TV at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. There's no sports, so what am I going to watch, right? Or I promised my mom I would watch, and, or hey, it's Easter, uh, you know, be kind to God day, that's what we all kind of do, or happy wife, happy life. I mean, but come on, did this thing really happen called the resurrection? So here's the two questions I want to pose this morning. The first is this. Is there actual, verifiable evidence this really happened, or was it just something made up by Christians following generations? Question number two. If it did happen, so what? What difference does it make in your life and my life if the resurrection actually happened? What difference does it make? So those are the two questions we'll look at today. Let's begin with question number one. How do we know the resurrection really happened? Okay, let's take it to a courtroom to examine. Now, when you think about uh, lawyers, who's the best lawyer you can imagine? Okay, now if you're old like me, you say, oh, it was Perry Mason, obviously, right? Uh, but there's other, who are other great lawyers you think of? Maybe uh, Johnny Cochran, uh, Clarence Darrow, right? F. Lee Baby, F. Lee Bailey. <laughs> but none of those are the greatest lawyer that ever lived. Do you know who the greatest attorney that ever lived, according to the Guinness Book of World Records? Sir Lionel Lucku. Sir Lionel Lucku, a British guy that had 245 consecutive murder trials he successfully defended. 245 continuously, I mean, successive uh, uh, murder trials that he successfully defended. He was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth. Wouldn't it be cool if we could have a legal opinion by Sir Lionel Lucku? Well, whether the evidence for the resurrection cuts it or not? Well, actually, we do. Because somebody actually challenged him years ago to study the resurrection in a sort of courtroom setting, and the answer to the question he gave, is the evidence enough? This was his conclusion. By the way, you can find this in a book he wrote, What is Your Verdict? Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? Here's his conclusion. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so powerful that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Man, that's really cool, isn't it? I mean, uh, this guy, after he did this study and after he did this courtroom thing, he actually gave his heart to Jesus at age 64 in 1978. He said, I believe. 
I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was resurrected and I believe in him as my Lord and Savior. So I want to take a couple of minutes and examine what would lead the world's most successful attorney to conclude that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. Four E's. Easy to remember. E number one, the empty tomb. (laughs) This is funny. Newsweek magazine published a letter a few years ago uh, that somebody got from the South Carolina Department of Social Services, okay? A A government organization making a major screw up. Never happened in Phoenix, right? Or or it happened in Tucson, but not in Phoenix. So, so Newsweek got this letter and published it, and it was sent to a resident of Greenville County, South Carolina. This is what the letter said. To whom it may concern, we regret to inform you that your food stamps will be stopped effective immediately because we have received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. May you, re- you may reapply if there's a change in your circumstances. <laughs> You've got to love the government, right? Well, there's only one person who has changed his circumstances by coming back to life. And that was Jesus Christ. Everyone, everyone agrees, even the enemies of Jesus, even the first century historian Josephus, who was not a Christ follower, everyone agrees the tomb was empty. What happened? Well, let me give you just kind of a brief kind of a scenario of what happened in those, uh, uh, at, after the crucifixion. So Jesus is, uh, dies on the cross. And that's verifiable. Uh, the Roman soldier verified it. Pontius Pilate verified it. Everyone verified it. So he was, he was dead. So along comes uh, Nicodemus and Joseph, two Pharisees who became followers of Jesus during this time when they were trying to be critical of him. So Nicodemus and Joseph, and Joseph not Josephus, Joseph, were two guys that said, yeah, we, we're Pharisees, but we're now followers of Jesus. So uh, uh, Joseph has some juice. He's got a lot of money, wealthy, and so he knows Pontius Pilate personally. He goes to Pilate and said, hey, can we have the body? Okay, now Jesus has been dead for several hours. His body is just limply lying on the cross still. And Pontius Pilate said, well... Before you can take the body, I want to make sure he's dead. So he calls in the guard and said, is that guy actually dead up there? He said, yes. I put a spear in his side and water and blood came out, which meant that he was dead. And yeah, he is really, really dead. So Pontius Pilate said, okay, Nicodemus, Joseph, you can have the body. We don't care. Because normally when somebody died on a cross, because they wanted the Roman people to see what would happen if you broke the law, they would put him in a, in a big... A big kind of garbage pit. It was called Gehenna, which was a Hebrew word for hell. This big garbage pit, Gehenna. All those bodies, they would leave the bodies up for three days on the cross, take them down, throw them into this garbage heap. That's what they usually did with the bodies. But Pontius Pilate gave permission to Joseph and Nicodemus, hey, you can have the body, take it away. I know he's dead, so he's not going to bother us anymore. Go for it. So that's exactly what they did. So they take the body, and the Bible says in John that they had 75 pounds of spices and, seven, uh, uh, and aloes and things like that. And this is what they were going to put his body in. And they would wrap it with linen and wet it down. And it would be kind of like this plaster of Paris thing that was over the body. I mean, this guy was dead. He had 100 pounds of this stuff on him laying on a slab in a, in a tomb that Joseph happened to own, Joseph of Arimathea. So all of this was happening, and in the sidelines, the, the disciples had scattered. 
They were afraid. They just were scattered. But the women, Mary, Mary, Salome, at Herodas, the others, women were following this and they were sneaking around. Where are they going to take the body? So they watched as Joseph and Nicodemus took the body and they went in there and they said, well, it looks like they're going to prepare the body for burial, but, you know, we don't know. They're guys. They may mess it up. So anyway, so they, they you know, but they see all this. And then the tomb is covered and um, uh, with this big two, uh, uh, two-ton stone it's on an incline. So you could roll it down and close it easy enough. You just couldn't roll it out and, and get in there easy. So the women saw all this happen. They saw the body in there. They saw that Nicodemus and Joseph put him in there and they went away and said, man, it's over, it's dead. So the first piece of evidence I want to bring before the court is exhibit A, right? The empty tomb. The Bible teaches that after professional executioners crucified Jesus, his corpse was played in this rock, uh, laid in this rock, solid rock tomb. His body was covered with 100 pounds of spices extensively wrapped in strips of linen cloth. A very large stone, two tons, was then rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb. After this boulder was in place, a contingent of up to 16 Roman soldiers was assigned to secure the tomb. This was by Pontius Pilate. He said, you got to secure this tomb because we don't want these disciples coming and stealing the body and saying that something weird happened, right? Now, some pictures that you've seen about the, the guards at the tomb, it looks like there's two, but we don't know how many there were. Uh, you've seen show one or two men standing around like in miniskirts, right? Holding a spear in their hands. That's simply not the case. These men were human fighting machines. These gladiators were trained to protect the area around the tomb against the entire battalion, the empty tomb. Matthew 27:66 says, tell us that in addition to the Roman guard, they put a tamper-proof official Roman seal on the stone. Anyone who happened to make it past the Roman soldiers would then have to break the seal incurring the wrath of the Roman Empire. The tomb is empty. No one expected Jesus to rise from the dead. That's the first evidence, the empty tomb. The second is the eyewitness testimony. Now, the Apostle Paul, who later, uh, he saw Jesus in this kind of vision, and Jesus knocked him on the ground, and he was blinded for a while. That's the Paul. His name was Saul, turned to Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians uh, these words. I passed on to you what I received, which is of the greatest importance. Now let me pause there. Uh, You know what Paul is saying when you hear the greatest importance? Uh, You've heard this in school, right? This is going to be on the final exam, right? The final exam of life. You better pay attention. That Christ died for our sins, as is written in the scriptures. That he was buried and was raised to life on the third day, as is written in the scriptures. And then he appeared... Don't take my word for it, you know, Peter's saying, don't take, or Paul's saying, don't take my word for it. He appeared to Peter, to the twelve, to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul writes. Over 515 witnesses, and this is just a partial list of those who saw, felt, talked to, heard from, Jesus, after he was freed from this 100 pounds of spices and all this stuff all over him, the dead man came to life. And they talked, he talked to all of these people and they had this great experience being with him. They said, I saw him, I talked to him, I heard him, I felt him. He is alive. Eyewitness testimony. Evidence number two. Evidence number three. 
the existence of an energized church. Something happened 2,000 years ago that exploded on the scene of the world and has changed everything. There's never been an incident in the history of the world that has been more influential than this one act, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One author says this, the coming into existence of the church rips a hole in history, the size and shape of the resurrection. If you don't accept the resurrection, what do you propose to fill the gap with? Peter was one of those that led this energized church. Now, this was the same Peter that when Jesus was arrested, he stayed outside in the courtyard. And while they were trying Jesus, three times he denied Christ. Every time the rooster crowed. One time he denied Christ to a a middle school girl. He was terrified. This is the guy who later became the leader of the energized church that changed the world. In Acts chapter 4, it said that John and Peter and the others literally changed the world. Listen to what happened. Now, later, Peter's forgiven by Jesus. You remember when he had supper on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus fed, made him, fed, fed him fish and they had breakfast and he asked Peter, said, do you love me? And he said, yes, I do. So all of he, he was forgiven and he was blessed and he was anointed to become the leader of the church. And this is what happened in Acts chapter 2. Peter stood up, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. God has raised to life, raised this Jesus to life And we are all witnesses of the fact. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about, listen, 3,000 were added to the number that day. 3,000 people on one day said yes to Jesus because of the preaching of Peter. This man that was afraid, this man that hid, this man that wept because he denied Jesus three times. The existence of an energized church has spanned throughout history. The world has changed. There are over one billion Christians in the world today. And it all started when Jesus was raised from the dead. The church just exploded, even though they were persecuted, even though many of them died and were martyred. The church exploded in those first 300 years. The last evidence is this, existence of transformed lives, of which I am one, of which many of you have experienced a transformed life through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Prior to Easter, the disciples were a mess. After the crucifixion, they were dejected. They were hopeless. They were fearful. He said, what's next? All our hopes and dreams for the last three years were placed on this Messiah. Now we believe that he's not even the Messiah because he is dead, he is gone, and he is not coming back. They went to a room. They gathered together. They're probably very discouraged, very lonely, very sad. But something changed history. What happened in that room? They met the living, resurrected Christ. Here's the evidence, a quote from Canon West, Westcott, excuse me, Westcott in Cambridge University. This is what he said. Indeed, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every other religion that has had a leader you can go to any of their graves. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Buddha. You go to Christ's grave and it is empty because he is alive. 
Question one, number one, is there evidence for a real verifiable resurrection? Absolutely yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt. The second question really is more important than the first question. And it's this, what difference does that make to you? What difference did that make to you in your life? What happened in that room to those disciples can happen to you. The so what of the resurrection. Let me share with you what the so what of the resurrection is. The first thing is this. You can experience pardon from your past. I can experience pardon from my past. In other words, a brand new beginning. Now, Raise your hand if you've ever said anything you wished you hadn't said, okay? All over, all outside, all over the living rooms, I see you, I see you, I see you. And this is just for married guys. Uh, in, in the middle of saying something really stupid, you say to yourself, this just isn't, isn't going to fly with my wife. How many have said that? Okay, that's a mass confession. Bless you, you're all forgiven. You know what's interesting? God specializes in brand new beginnings, and that's what Easter is all about. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians 2, 14, verse 13b and 14. For he forgave all our sins. How many of your sins? He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Isn't that amazing? He took all of our sins. He forgave us from all of our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, it's like your sins and my sins were on him, were his sins, and he died for those sins. And then the next verse tells us how that can be applicable to you and to me. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 in the Living Bible, it says this, when someone becomes a Christian, like Sir Lionel Luku, like me, like many of you, And I I just want to interject here. There may be some of you here today that have never said yes to Jesus. You've never said, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. You're going to have an opportunity to do that at the close of this message. So this verse can be yours. So when someone becomes a Christian, listen, he becomes a brand new person inside. He is not the same anymore. A new life has begun. You can begin again. Uh, back in 1997, uh, those of you in our church have heard my testimony. Um, I, as a result of the death of our son and all kinds of goofy thinking and behaving, uh, I really became addicted to gambling. And for three years, I kept it a secret from my wife and my children and my church and in Minnesota. And um, when I finally confessed that, and I finally kind of washed that out of my system and God helped me through counseling, through GA, and through other things. Here's what I experienced. I experienced a wife who said, I will never leave you in spite of your brokenness and sin. I experienced two children, Tammy and Nathan, who said, Dad, we still love you. We're going to be with you through this whole thing. I experienced a church who forgave me. But more than anything else, I experienced the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus. I was a pastor, and I was sinning. All of you are people that have said, many of you have said yes to Jesus, and you still continue to sin. Here's the good news. You can experience pardon from your past, from all of your past, from everything you have done wrong. You can begin again. Because of the resurrection, I have pardon from my past But listen to this. I also have power in the present, right now. 
Notice the great verse from Paul. I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great his power is to help those who believe in him is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. The same power that Jesus had, we have the power in us. The Bible says in Colossians, Christ in me, the hope of glory. When Christ is in you, that power that he had is in you as well to live your life fully in the present. In these days of brokenness in our world and this coronavirus and this sheltering at home and and not being able to do things we normally want to do, there's all this angst and this worry and this fear and everything else. What the resurrection tells us is that you can have power in your present circumstances just the way you are. People would flock to Jesus because they saw him heal with a touch. They saw blind people who could see again. Lame people who could walk again. That kind of power, the Bible says, can be ours. What kind of power is that for you and for me? It's the power to come back from failure. It's the power to come back after a failed marriage. It's the power to come back after a broken heart. It's the power to recover and come back after a business failure. In other words, it's living on the power of God. And you can do that, if that because that same power is available to you. You have pardoned from your past. You have, excuse me, you have pardoned from your past. You have power in the present. And listen to this, you have a promise for your future. A promise for a future. You've got God's promise. I know we're all very anxious about what's happening in our world today. But God says, for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, I've got you. You're mine. I will hold you. I will keep you. I've got you. Jesus, one of his best friends was Lazarus and Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. In John chapter 11, we read the story how that uh, Jesus came back when he heard that Lazarus was sick and that he had died. And uh, Martha came to him and said, Jesus, where were you? We wish you had been here. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And this is what Jesus said to Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Now listen, and whoever lives and believes in me, say it with me if you're at home, will never die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus asked the most important question that he asks in his entire life, and it's this. Martha, do you believe this? And I would ask Grace Community Church, others who are watching this broadcast, do you believe this? Do you believe that you will never die? Do you believe that your future is secure in Christ Jesus? That's the promise that God gives to each and every one of us, that you will never die. I want to close with a story, a wonderful story. Uh, It comes from my friend Ray Johnston, uh, who grew up in uh, rural Iowa. And uh, he, was a, he loved baseball. He was just a little boy, eight years old. And uh, he tells the story in the first person. I'm the youngest guy on the team. I'm the least skilled on the team. And I'm the skinniest guy on the team. My uniform hung off me like my scrawny body, like a rag. And I played in right field. 
Even when you're eight years old, you know why you're in right field. <laughs> no one in the history of Little League has ever hit a ball into right field. I came up to bat three times and struck out every time. I never even touched the ball. It was the seventh and last inning. The bases were loaded. There were two outs. And our team was behind by one run. Naturally, it was my turn to bat. I stood in the on-deck circle and heard someone say, hey, coach, pinch hit for that guy. He can't hit. But the coach came up to me and said, Ray, get up there and take your swings. I walked what seemed like 50 miles to home plate. I got up there scared stiff. I was shaking. And the second I looked out at the pitcher's mound, I knew I had no shot. I mean, the pitcher stood at least six foot nine inches tall and sported a full beard. At least that's how a 10-year-old seemed to an 8-year-old. I stepped into the batter's box still shaking. Everybody in the place was yelling and screaming. The the noise was deafening. The pitcher wound up. I didn't even see the first pitch. It came. I heard it hit the catcher's mitt. And the umpire yelled, strike one. The pitcher wound up again. After he got the ball back from the catcher, the pitcher wound up, threw a second pitch, and I heard the ball hit the mitt. Strike two, the umpire said. As the ball went back to the mound one more time, I said to myself, I've got to do something, or the game's over. I've got to swing the bat. So I stepped out of the batter's box. I, I knocked the dust off my shoes. I don't know why I did that, but I saw other guys do that. And I looked around, and then I saw it. 200 people on their side yelling and screaming for me to strike out and lose the game. And on the other side, 200 people on my side, of which 60 of them were my relatives, standing up and screaming for me to hit, get a hit and win the game. Some people actually hanging on the fence and straddling the fence, screaming for me to get a hit and win the game. I had never felt pressure like that. And I thought if I don't get a hit, I will be the failure that everybody already knows that I am. I'll be a failure for the rest of my life. Shaking, I stepped back into the box and said to myself, I've got to get a hit. I'm going to get a hit. So for the first time, I swung. I actually started swinging during the pitcher's windup, it seemed. The pitch came in. I actually saw it, and I swung as hard as I could, and I missed I heard the ball hit the catcher's mitt and I heard the umpire say, strike three, you're out. Game over. A huge cheer from their 200 people. Then I heard something I'll never forget. An audible groan from the other 200 people and I knew I had failed. I would let everybody down. I was going to have to live with this failure for the rest of my life. I dropped the bat at home plate and started the longest walk of my life up the first baseline to the dugout. The other team gathered and started chanting, uh, two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? And they pointed to me and said, him. (laughs) I walked by my opponents down to the dugout and heard my own teammates say, loser, idiot, you lost the game, moron. You know how sensitive 10-year-old boys can be. I walked past them to the end of the dugout. I sat down, pulled my hat over my eyes, my coat over my head, and I sobbed for 15 minutes. Nobody came anywhere near me. It was the last game of the day. The dust was settling, and I could hear the gravel underneath the car tires as people pulled out of the parking lot. Then everything got quiet. I continued to sit there crying. I knew I would never, ever 
ever recover from this failure. Then I heard a noise from the pitcher's mound. A voice said, Hey, son, get back up. The game ain't over. I didn't move. And then I heard it again, louder. Hey, son, get back up. The game ain't over. Well, I heard it a third time, louder still. Son, get back up. The game ain't over. I, I, I pulled the coat off of my head, the hat up over my eyes, and I looked out and I saw my dad standing on the pitcher's mound. He had a glove and a ball. And he said, son, get up. The game ain't over. I looked and I saw all of my, none of my relatives had left. In fact, many of them were on the field. They were waiting to play, a bunch of toddlers in their diapers hanging loose and toddling around the infield. Aunt Emma stood in left field. My blind Uncle Joe, trying to find right field, ran into the fence. They were all out there. And my dad stood on the pitcher's mound and calmly said, Hey, son, get back up. The game ain't over. Get back up. I looked toward home plate. My bat was still lying there where I dropped it. I sheepishly walked over to the plate. My dad was so cool. He just said, son, the game ain't over. He threw a pitch. Everybody started cheering. And I missed. He threw again. I missed again. About 15 pitches later, my dad threw it right down the middle, and I went whack and knocked it into left field. I stood at home plate, frozen. My dad said, why don't you run? I said, I don't know where first base is. So finally I started to run and, and I just in time to see Aunt Emma, the left fielder, throw the ball into center field. I thought, cool, I'm going to get a double. I ran to second base just in time to see Todd, my cousin, a pretty good athlete himself, playing center field, throw the ball into right field where Uncle Joe stood. As I ran to third base, I think I suspected they were screwing up on purpose. It was what I call now a conspiracy of grace to make sure I got home safe. But at this point, all I knew was they've thrown the ball to the blind guy, not going to score. I rounded third and sprinted towards home. And when I got 10 feet away, I dove for the plate and slid across and jumped up and dusted myself off, feeling good for the first time in four hours. And then I saw him. About five feet in front of me was my dad. He'd gotten down on one knee, so we were the same height. Tears were streaming down his face. My dad, held out his, my dad held out his arms and said, Son, you're safe at home. I threw myself into his arms. He picked me up and whispered in my ear, I told you the game wasn't over. That day turned into one of the best days of my life. My relatives ran onto the fin field and as the sun set on this little baseball field in nowhere, Iowa, they carried me off the field cheering. Friends, that is the message of Easter. No matter how often you've screwed up, no matter what your batting average is, the game ain't over. Jesus proved that when he went to the cross to die for your sins and rose again on the third day. Victory over death. Victory over your sin. Victory over Satan. I know some of you feel like you've struck out all, all year long and you feel like Jesus, if he's going to talk about my batting average, but here, here, here's what Jesus would say to you. I'm not here to talk about the rest, about your striking out. I'm here to talk about how the, the rest of your life can be the best of your life. How you can be forgiven of your sins. How you can have the power to live in the present. And how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will live forever.
Do you believe that? Because if you do, Jesus said, I will come and live with you and spend eternity with you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Some of us need to get back in the game. Christ got up on that third day because the game wasn't over for him. And it'll be the same thing in your life. If you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord, your Savior, now is an opportunity for you to do that. I'd like to ask all of you, if you will, to close your eyes, shut out everything around you. And if you've never said yes to Jesus, I'd like you to pray a prayer like this. You can use your own words, but you can just say something like this. Dear Father, thank you for sending your Son Jesus Christ to the earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was. And he proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and for forgiving all my sins. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I would invite you to tell someone, tell someone in your home, email me, text me, let me know that you said yes to Jesus because the rest of your life will be the best of your life with Jesus.